Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table. I welcome you to grab one. Uh, but the second book in the New Testament, the book of Mark, chapter 14. We were here last week. Um, we will be here this week. And again, contrary to my plan, we'll be here next week as well, uh, thinking about Jesus in Gethsemane and how we can learn of him to pray. Uh, this is Mark's account of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, these are the final moments before Jesus is going to be arrested and then tried and then crucified. And here in Gethsemane, as he looks at what is ahead of him, he prays to the Father out of deep agony and, and pain. Last Sunday, as we entered into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, we we, we sought to learn from him how to pray, as we just sang. Um, and we said there's a lot happening in this passage, but at least in part, Jesus does teach us about prayer here. And in particular, in particular, he teaches us about prayer in the midst of, of despair. Uh, when we are filled with sorrow, when we are filled with grief, as Jesus was, when life feels overwhelming, how, how do we pray? That situation could be different for all of us. It could be something that's particular to us, something that no one else cares about, maybe no one else even knows about. But it fills our field of vision. It could be pain that we have. It could be pain that we see in others that we love. But whatever it is, big or small, it's something that weighs us down in that instance, just like this is weighing on Christ. How do we, how do we pray in those moments? How do we pray when we know that we should pray, and when we want to pray, we just feel like we don't even know how to pray? How do we start? We began last week by, by thinking about Jesus entering into the garden and, and kind of talked about his about preparation for prayer, how to enter into this kind of prayer, more than about the words that we say. Uh, we talked first about the importance of place and said that we may need to find a place of of solitude and, and silence, away from distractions, a place where we can freely call out to the Lord. And then we talked about the, the ache for partners in prayer and the way that Jesus, God himself, who seems like he could handle this, calls for help from his friends, especially the three that he was closest to, Peter and James and John. And we too, we, we need to seek out those that we can bear our souls to, that we would say, would you wait with me in prayer? It's wonderful to, to pray with others, but we're calling people to watch with us and pray. But then we saw that there's the need for solitude in prayer. There's the need to, to be by ourselves, to be alone with the Lord. And in the midst of that, we thought about Jesus' question that he asks Peter later on, where he says, couldn't you watch with me one hour? And thought about the need uh, that, that prayer in the midst of pain sometimes takes time. That Jesus measures prayer not in minutes, but in, in hours. And he asks us, in the, in the midst of stress, in the midst of, of difficulty, if we can wait with him an hour, can we carve out a time to purposely come before him and to pray? And then we thought about finally posture in prayer and said that we can, we can pray in any place with any posture, but the act of kneeling in prayer is a physical way to reveal the, the posture of our hearts about how we are feeling in that moment. And, and even that, that kneeling itself can be prayer. When, when words won't come. 
So last week we said nothing about the words that we say in prayer. Um, but we do find words here. Jesus does speak. And so these four things are sort of, that we saw last week, are the preparation for, for prayer. They're the, the way that we place ourselves into an ad- attitude of prayer. They're, they're kind of the way that we step into the, the stream of prayer when life has overwhelmed us. And at that moment, then, it may be that words come. And, and what do we say? After we have knelt before the Lord in silence and, and solitude, what kind of words are going to form in our mouths? How, how do our souls speak in the midst of trouble? We said, surely the Spirit is interceding for us with words that we can't utter. But what words are going to come out of our hearts and onto our lips? How does Jesus teach us? What kind of words are we going to pray? Because, brothers and sisters, we are all going to face difficulty. We are all going to face trouble and times where we don't know how to pray. We're going to face pain and suffering and heartache. We will all be overwhelmed by life because we are all human beings. And prayer is not our last resort, as we said, but it should be our first response. And it's the best response to those moments. And here, this is what I think Jesus teaches us. Jesus teaches us the words to pray when we are at a loss for words. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Jesus teaches us the words to pray when we are at a complete and utter loss for words. When we want to pray, but we just don't know what to say. Jesus teaches us the words to pray when we are at a loss for words. Let's read Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Look with me at verse 32. And they, this is the disciples, minus Judas, went to the place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Then again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus teaches us here the words to pray when we are at a loss for words. Now, before we look at his words in particular, exactly what he he says, I want to reflect on the thought that Jesus seems to be praying out loud. That, that though he is a, alone, he is speaking aloud to the Father. I think that would be the best explanation for why we know what he has said in this moment. It, it could be that after his resurrection, during the 40 days when he's teaching his disciples about the kingdom, that, that they may have asked or he may have told them, this is what I prayed in the garden. But it's, it's not a stretch, I don't think, to think that Peter and James and John knew what Jesus prayed 
that night because they heard him before they fell asleep. That Jesus didn't pray in silence simply because he was alone. Remember that Mark is writing probably on the testimony of Peter. And Peter may have heard these words. And if he did hear these words, how they would have stuck in his mind on that night. I think we get another clue from Hebrews 5.7. seems to be a reference to this prayer. This is what Hebrews 5.7 says. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He offered loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That sounds like the garden, doesn't it? And so apparently he not only prayed out loud, but he prayed loudly. We're told in Luke that the disciples fell asleep, and, and not just because they were tired. It says they fell asleep because of sorrow. Could it be that they, they heard the cries of Jesus, and they themselves were overcome with grief? They themselves were overcome with tears. They didn't know how to handle this. And they fell asleep. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there where you just don't know how to respond, and you just fall asleep. I mention all this because there's something profound, I think, about not simply allowing the words of our prayers to, to form in our hearts, but to let them form on our lips as well. There's something deep about that. I think that's why we're called in Scripture to confess our sins to one another. Because there, there's something about speaking our failures out loud to others that lets the ugliness and the pain of sin become real to us. There are things that we know in our hearts that we can we can hold them there, and as long as we're silent, we just they stay right there and they're, they're real close to us. But when we have to speak those thoughts or those feelings out loud, they they bring emotions out of us that we may have not even known were there until the words form on our lips. So I think we've all been there. We think we have it all together. And then someone asks us to verbalize something. They say, you know, what are you thinking? Or what are you feeling? Or tell me what just happened. And then we start to, to speak out loud. And as we start to talk out loud, that's when we lose it. That's when we become overwhelmed with emotion. We realize how deeply we've been hurt. Or we see how angry we are. Or how scared we are about something. We tell stories of our past. And in telling those stories, we find out that the wounds are still really close to us because something wells up in us. Even though it's been 10, 20, 30 years, we still feel the pain of that when we have to say it out loud. And I think that prayer is no different and that praying out loud, forming the words, helps us to understand our own hearts in a deeper way. So I can feel the weight of parenthood. But if I call out to God for help and I admit my feelings of failure, if I talk about my anger to God, I understand that even more deeply how much I need help. You can know that a loved one is on the verge of death, but then when you say it out loud to God in prayer, it awakens something different in our hearts. We can feel angry about what God is doing, about the path that we're on, about how he is leading. And then when we form that anger into actual words on our lips, we start to understand something deeper about our hearts. Now, are we required to pray out loud? No, that's the wonder of prayer. That's the beauty of prayer. We don't have to pray out loud, just like you don't have to be alone to pray. And you don't have to kneel to pray. But I think as we think about praying in moments of despair and fear and pain, praying out loud may be very helpful 
to take us into a deeper communion. Of course, we're all very different. Some of us have no problem thinking about crying loudly to God. And for some of us, we've never cried loudly ever in our lives. And there's different personalities. It could be different for all of us. I'm reminded of, of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. You remember that her heart is broken by the fact that she is barren and the fact that no one seems to understand what she's going through. And in the midst of that, what does she do? She brings this ache in her heart before the Lord. And while she's praying in the temple, Eli looks at her. Now, Eli draws silly conclusions about it. But listen to what 1 Samuel 1, verses 12 and 13 says. It says, as she, as Hannah, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Notice her her voice is not heard, but she's forming the words on, on her lips in a way that seems to help her in pouring out her heart before God. And that may be what we need to do in the midst of prayer, that you don't have to cry out loudly, but there's something about forming the words on our lips that helps us to enter into deeper communion with the Lord. That may all sound strange to you, right? Why am I talking about speaking out loud in prayer? Talking out loud in an empty room or while you're walking through the woods or while you're sitting in traffic, that's what crazy people do, you know? If I do it in the car, I just make sure no one's around me because I don't want them to think that I'm a crazy person. But it could be a simple thing that just allows us to pray in a unique way, to enter into deeper communion with the Father. It flows from this understanding, I think, that while deeply spiritual, we pray as human beings in physical bodies, and we, we process and we learn things in a way that's influenced by the fact that we are physical human beings. If you're learning a language, you don't just learn by writing the language. You don't learn just by speaking the language. You don't learn just by listening to the language. You, you do all of it. It's multimodal, you know. And so when we seek to pray and we want to learn how to pray, I think we do all that. We, we kneel. We lift our hands to the Father. We speak out loud. We learn to pray by involving our whole body in this process. And then we find that our hearts are, are following, our spirits are following as we lead. It's like communion that we will take this morning where we touch and we smell and we taste the elements and the physical senses that are associated with that awaken our hearts. They awaken our spiritual senses in a deep way. When we speak into that quiet, when we speak out loud, if that's what we do, the first words that we probably will say are Father. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here. That's his example. And so as we think about the words, I'm just going to give you two thoughts about words this morning, and we'll have more next Sunday. But the first is, we come as children to a loving Father. We come as children to a loving Father. And that when we pray, that that's the first thing that's coming onto our lips. That's the When we think about words, we're expressing in some way the thought that we are coming as children to a loving Heavenly Father. You know this, that when Jesus formally taught his disciples to pray, when, when, he, they, when he was asked, Lord, teach us to pray, what does he say? He says, well, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. That's how he begins. That's how we start. Then here in the garden, as he falls to the ground, Jesus begins with these words, Abba, Father. The foundation of Jesus' prayer is his relationship to God as Father. And that relationship begins his prayer life and then forms Everything that flows after that. 
It doesn't come to God with a posture that would indicate that God is, is removed from him, that God is unconcerned with his pain and his suffering. God is sovereign over this. But Jesus doesn't come to the Father and, and have this idea that the Father is thinking, this is the plan, son. This is what we're supposed to do, and you've known that, and so you just need to do it. That's not the heart of the Father to the Son. He comes to God as a Father, and he calls him Abba. It's a term that there's probably no great uh, way to equate it into English. Often people have said it's Dad or Daddy or Papa. Uh, regarding the use of the word Abba, Brendan Manning writes this. He says, In his human journey, Jesus experienced God in a way that no prophet of Israel had ever dreamed or dared. Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit of the Father and spoke to God using a name that would scandalize both the theology and public opinion of Israel. The name that escaped the mouth of the Nazarene carpenter? Abba. Jewish children used this intimate colloquial form of speech in addressing their fathers, and Jesus himself employed it with his foster father, Joseph. As a term for divinity, however, it, it, its use was unprecedented, not only in Judaism, but also in any of the great world religions. It was, it was scandalous for Jesus to refer to God as his father. In fact, that's one of the key pieces of evidence that's used against him when the authorities are seeking the death penalty because of his blasphemy. They say he called God his father. That intimacy, that closeness with God was astonishing. And what's even more astonishing is that while we could accept that Jesus had that relationship with the God of the universe, it's more amazing that, that he would invite us into that. So Brendan Manning continues, he says, Jesus, the beloved son, does not hoard this experience for himself. He invites and calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. I think Paul loved this idea because he picks up on it in two of his letters, both in Romans and Galatians. He brings out this idea of calling God Abba, Father. So Galatians 4, we'll look at Romans 8.15 later, but Galatians 4, Paul talks about our status as slaves in the world, uh, slaves to the world and the flesh and the devil. And then in verse 4 of Galatians 4, he writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. Jesus is sent into the world and into the garden and to the cross to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery, to make us his children through faith. But we're born in rebellion to God. We are separated from him. We are unable to approach God because of our sin. But Jesus, in his submission to the will of the Father, here and on the cross, he becomes our mediator. And as we come to him in repentance and faith, we are not just forgiven of our sins, we're not just freed from the power of sin, we are, we are adopted. We become children of God. We become sons and daughters of God. And we're invited to pray like our elder brother. We're invited to pray like Jesus and say, Abba, Father. I know Father can be a difficult term for a lot of people. But I would simply say, however 
our earthly fathers have failed us, God fills up everything that they lack. And in fact, any way that our earthly fathers showed love or reflected God, that was just a dim reflection of the love and the care that the Father in heaven has for us. That relationship with the Father through the sacrifice of the Son that means the Spirit dwells within us. And one of the things that the Spirit does best is that He cries out, He helps us, He calls us to cry out, Abba, Father, when we are in need and when we are overwhelmed. So I think in the midst of despair, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of anguish, that one of the first ways that we, one of the first words that we will form is the word Father. And that that shapes so much that what we say, because it's built on relationship. And it's built on a Father who loves and cares and longs to hear from us. Closely tied to that is the second thought, which is that we express our emotions honestly. So we come as children to a loving father, and then the words that we form next are that we express our emotions honestly. There's a lot of passion and pathos going on in this passage to hear all that is going on in Jesus' heart. We said last week that Jesus bore his soul, as it were, to, to, to Peter and to James and to John in a way that he didn't with the other disciples. When they were separated from the larger group, he leaves the eight and brings the three with him. It's at that point that Jesus sort of lowers his guard and, and reveals what's going on in his heart. And they get a glimpse of his anguish. Interesting, I was listening to a sermon and they pointed out how Peter, James, and John are separated out on a couple different occasions. Do you remember the other one? It's the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, they get a glimpse of the glory of God of the deity of God, of, of Jesus. And here, they get this glimpse of the humanity of Jesus in a unique way. So here, Jesus bears his soul to his friends, but he bears his soul to the Father in a way that he did not and could not with anyone else. I don't know about you, but I am usually fully aware of the eyes and the ears of other people. And so I sort of temper and shield my emotions and the expressions of them based on the people that are around me. Um, some of that's wisdom. Some of that is what's socially acceptable. Some of it is fear and insecurity and pride. Some of it's fear of being truly known, of being judged, of being misunderstood. Children learn this slowly. When am I supposed to show my emotions and when am I not? So a two-year-old throws a tantrum in the grocery store because the fact that other people around has no bearing on what they're going to do. Um, we love having kids in the service. The, the kids ages four and under go to the nursery because in some ways they haven't learned that yet. In the midst of service, they will talk loudly and they will say what they're thinking because they're kids and they're learning those things. Now, a two-year-old will throw a tantrum in the grocery store. A 12-year-old will throw a tantrum in the car afterwards right you know that's how we all learn that's what we all do that's the negative side of the picture i think but the positive thing is that a child feels that they cannot express their emotions freely in public but yet home is is a safe place home is a place where you can talk about fears and difficulties and and frustrations and you can talk about them with loud cries and tears <laughs> my hope too is that the church would be a place like that 
that the church would be a place where we can talk about what's going on in deep ways with loud cries and tears and wear our emotions on our sleeves. And the home in the church isn't that just because it's a place that's away from strangers, but because it's a place that's filled with people who love and understand us, who care for us deeply, who are willing to show us grace and who invite us to, to bear our soul. They, they, they want us to show how we are feeling and to say what we're scared of and what we're upset about. But even more intimate than, than a church could ever be or your home could ever be is, is this garden of, of prayer with the Heavenly Father. Jesus shows us that we are invited to, to approach the Father and to bear our emotions and our souls completely. Jesus in this moment is not concerned with how anyone else views him, what anyone else thinks about the words that he's saying. He speaks to the Father with the full knowledge that the Father loves him, that the Father accepts him, that the Father understands what he is going through. Now this is not original to Jesus. Jesus perfects it as he does everything. But the Psalms capture this spirit. You might think about uh, even Habakkuk, where he cries out to God and, and says, God, what in the world are you doing? I do not understand this. And, and God's word through the Psalms and other places gives us words to say when our hearts are full. We might turn to, I've turned many times to Psalm 51, when I'm overcome with guilt for my sin, and I don't know how to express it. But the psalmist has given me words to help me understand. We might go to Psalm 73. There's a man who's overcome by the evil in the world, and he's, he's pretty ticked off about it, and he's angry about it, and he expresses that to God. Or you can go to Psalm 102. You know what the title of Psalm 102 is? Here's the title of Psalm 102. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. When you feel that, you go to Psalm 102, and I say, this is how I feel, God. Give me some words to say. And those words help us express our hearts and to form our own complaint. You know, there are times in prayer where I find myself explaining myself to God. So I will say something or think something in, in prayer, and I, and I know that that could be misunderstood in a normal conversation, and so I try to find a better way to say it. Um, I, I think part of that is processing my own heart and my own emotions, and there's things that I might say that are sinful and wrong, and I need to say, well, that's not really right, God, let me tweak that. But there's also a sense in which the words that we use, especially in these moments where we're overwhelmed, they will always be inadequate. But the knowledge of the Father, the love of the Father is complete. So we can come to God and we can express ourselves in raw and, and unedited terms. You don't need to be polished. You know, sometimes when we sit around the tables here at night, we feel like, well, I've got to make sure that I use the right words when I pray, because there's, a, there's right words to use and there's wrong words to use. But there's moments when we can be before the Father, and, and we just say what we're feeling. And we sometimes don't even know how to say it, but we say it the best that we can, and we trust and know that the Father hears us and understands I think, like I said, there's this close tie between coming to God as Father and, and expressing our emotions honestly. And I, I say that because you, Romans 8.15 says this. It says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We often think of that cry, Abba, Father, as a, as a term of, of endearment. 
But when, when Paul is talking about believers crying out in Romans 8, it's a word that refers to a, a loud cry of someone in need. And you can look at the context there and, and, and check me out here. But, but both in Galatians and here in Romans, I don't think it's far-fetched to see that Paul has um, the garden in the back of his mind. That's where Jesus says, Abba, Father. And because of that, this is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, Paul therefore seems to have in mind a loud cry that issues from a situation of great need. That's what we're talking about, right? Abba Father is not a restful whisper of contentment and security. It is the cry of a child who has stumbled, tripped, and fallen, and is crying out for his, his or her father to come and to help. It is the deepest instinct of the child in need. This is precisely why we cry Abba, why the cry Abba Father is so significant. It expresses at a point of intense need an instinct that is absent from the unbeliever's consciousness. Did you catch that? It's different from the unbeliever's consciousness. At best, a person, unsaved person, may and often does cry out, Oh God, but not instinctively, Oh Father. That cry is the fruit of the ministry of the Spirit. It is his co-testimony with our spirit. Even in the hour of darkness, the believer possesses an instinct, a testimony. He or she knows him or herself to be a child of God. We are children of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. That's our natural response to the trials of life. Not just, Oh God, but Oh Father. And God desires us to pour our hearts out to him. We open with Psalm 62. In Psalm 62, I love what it says. It says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And amazingly, in this moment, as Jesus is experiencing the anguish of taking the sins of the world upon Himself, as He's modeling for us how to come to the Father, knowing that He hears us, He's also in some way, becoming the mediator, becoming the high priest who fully feels the pain and the heartbreak that we feel. So he is modeling it for us, and then he becomes the mediator that we can come to and know that he feels that because of this. He sympathizes us in a way that no one else ever can, that we can come to the Father and be honest about our emotions, and we can come through Jesus knowing that he has experienced everything that we've ever experienced, and even more so, he's experienced it all to the fullest extent. And we can come in the strength of the Spirit, because he's interceding on our behalf, in the midst of the emotions that we don't fully comprehend, and he's praying for us. And the whole Trinity, as it were, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are helping us to pray when we don't even know what to pray. And when we are lost, in our, and we can't wrap our heads around what we are feeling, and we can't even understand the emotions that we're feeling, that the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are helping us in the midst of prayer. What an amazing thing. So as we step into deep moments of prayer, we, we speak aloud to God, maybe, and we come to Him, and we, we call Him our Father. And we, we open ourselves fully to Him. As First Peter 5, 7 says, we cast all of our anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for us. He cares. Next week we're going to think about how out of this moment of weakness then, Jesus says, says, Abba, Father, then He says, all things are possible for you. 
it recognizes the power of God, and then he's going to ask for the desire of his heart, and then he's going to submit to the will of the Father. And that's what we'll think about next time. But I thought as we enter into this time of taking the Lord's Supper, that it would be good to pause, and we're learning from Jesus how to pray, but let's also remember why he's in the garden. Why is he even staring down the prospect of the cross? The night that he was in the garden was the same night that he instituted the meal that we are about to take. Isn't that amazing? Just probably hours beforehand. It's this meal that remembers his broken body and his, his shed blood. And so as we've kind of lingered here in, in Gethsemane, we start to see the depth of Christ's suffering. That it, it was physically excruciating, but also that, that his heart was crushed right along with his body. The name Gethsemane indicates that it was a place where, where olives were pressed, where they made olive oil. And it's often been related that here Jesus is, is pressed. Luke tells us that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because of the anguish that he felt. Later on we see Peter and others gathered around a fire because the night was probably cold. But here Jesus is so wrestling with God, so overcome with emotion that he's actually sweating on this night. And he went from the garden and went to the cross. And, and what we see here, I think, too, is that the, the anguish that he is feeling is is real. Even in the midst of, he, he is God, and he knows that God is going to work all these things for good, and he knows that this is the plan, but this is real, true heartache and pain. He wasn't taking on the wrath of God because of what he had done. He's taking on the wrath of God for us. He feels the weight of that. We'll sing in a moment that it was in my place condemned you stood. But that's the reality of what's happening here. And it's this sacrifice of Jesus that we remember this morning, that he took all this pain here in the garden, and then from the garden to the cross, and from the cross all the way to the grave. And he did it in our place. He did it for me, and he did it for you. He gives us this example of how to pray, but even more profound, he, he purchases salvation. And it begins here in the garden.